right now. We'll, we'll talk like, you know, 40 minutes. I really appreciate you giving us some time. Um, we don't really know each other, but we kind of have been following each other on Coraflot for maybe a decade on portfolios. I remember like seeing your stuff back then and I knew you were like a Nike guy and I lived, used to live in Portland, Oregon a long time ago. Um, so we've got Dan over here. Hey. Uh, Dan, Daniel Phipps, uh, Aaron Hernandez, and Tony Lato. Um, so we're just, you know, this is kind of something that we like to do, talk to various designers, different disciplines, talk about design and just like, you know. Shoot the breeze. Yeah, just like things that we go through in design. And, and you have an interesting background and you've got some really cool um, stuff up on YouTube and advice. And we try to give advice to people. And so I kind of feel like there's a lot of symbiotic things there uh, that people can garner information from new designers and older designers. I actually think some of your stuff's even relevant to, you know, myself. I've been looking at your sketch, uh, digital sketching and, and that sort of stuff, which is pretty cool because um, that's, that's you know, new, new to me. Um, I love what, you know, I, I just really love what we do. And I love sharing that enthusiasm and sharing what I've learned. And I, I, I'm a big believer in that the best way to learn something is to teach it. And so yeah. I find when I explain things, I, I learn things in a totally different way. And, and um, yeah. yeah, I know I, I'm a big believer in kind of, it's, a, it's an overused word, but right. And I, I feel like, you know, because designers, we all have our, our own path to get, to get here. Right. It's like, right. in most cases, I, probably all of you on the, on the call here, like probably none of uh, our parents wanted us to be designers. They probably weren't like, Hey, you should be an industrial designer. <laughs> right? We all kind of find our own way. And, and I think right. that produces this kind of sense of community that when we, hopefully when we see an, and find another industrial designer, we're like, Hey, let's talk, let's share. Yeah, no, for sure. I, and that's kind of how I feel. And, and uh, you know, Dan and I, uh, so kind of give you a quick, rundown of our situation here you know dan is a freelancer um and and has his own design firm here in austin and i'm i work at dell and i've always worked corporate i've never worked outside corporate and so we kind of have this different mix and then we've got aaron who is essentially uh, uh, kind of a new designer you've been doing yeah. two years now out of school three three years so he's he's pretty new to the world and he works for dan and so um, we kind of have these different ideas about, you know, things that kind of work. And then Aaron, you know, he always asks good questions because, you know, he, he hasn't been around as long as us. And, and, um, I liked your work and I liked your stuff, um, because you, you're, you're kind of, um, and I was telling Dan and Aaron this, you're kind of like, you're, you're like a real Renaissance designer, um, and you know, like, like the old school eighties guys and not eighties in sort of a bad way, but like you work in all these different industries, which is really unusual, I think for individual designers. I, and, and maybe there's some that I don't know about. So I apologize in advance if anyone is working in all these industries and, and I don't well, know, but you, yeah, there aren't that many. And the, the challenge, as I think we know is, you know, in, in some of your work, you've, you've done a lot of stuff in, let's say, shoes, right? And then you've done some transportation and then you've done toys. Yeah. Most of the time, you know, if you if you do shoes, you're kind of a shoe guy. Or if you do toys, you do basically do toys and you kind of specialize maybe a little bit more. And it's and it's very difficult to get outside that, let's say. So that's one thing that I think it would be great to talk to you about is how have you been able to successfully 
you know, find success in these categories, but not necessarily get pigeonholed into, hey, uh, here's Mike and he's a shoe guy. That's what he does. Right. I reject those labels. You know, I think for me, uh, learning about industrial design, um, you know, I always looked up to people like Raymond Lowy. It's like doing everything from the livery for Air Force One to Studebakers, the locomotives to toasters, um, to packaging, the UPS logo. And so I always, I believe, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, Vignelli said a, a good designer can design anything. That's and right. I, I've always believed that. And when somebody put a label on me, I always quick to reject that. Um, how have you been able to, you know, I think, I think you, we, we share sort of that same idea, right? You can apply the same design principles and process to just about anything. How have you been able to successfully, share that with maybe people who are non-designers who would look at you and say, Hey, you know, this is what he does, but how can he, you know, design this pocket knife for us or whatever it may be? Yeah. I think for me, it's always just been proving that. So, I mean, I started my career in consulting, at a small consultancy in Connecticut called Evo. And there we were doing work for Bose, Burton, uh, Schick, Nike, um, Fisher Price, Hasbro, so um, Libby Stemware, um, so everything from from wine glasses to to um, you know toy cars, right? And so I think I, that was instilled pretty early in me that like you could do anything, kind of a feeling. And then um, when I went corporate to Nike, I um, you know I remember I got my business cards there. My like you know my third or fourth week, my business cards came in. Oh. And at the bottom, it said, you know, you know, Michael DiTullo, footwear designer. And I told my boss, like, you're going to have to shred these. And he's like, why? I'm like, I can't, I can't say footwear designer. That's not what I am. I'm an industrial designer, works for a footwear company. And, you know, while I was there, you know, I, I got to, I didn't get to, I made sure that I collaborated, you know, in addition to, to doing my footwear work, I collaborated with the, the, you know, the industrial designers working on watches and eyewear. Uh, I worked on branding. I worked on like the new typeface for the Jordan 22 um, mm-hmm. at the time. And so, you know, for me, I'm like, hey, I'm in this uh, almost collegiate type atmosphere with 300 designers. Like I'm going to play in the, in, this, in the full sandbox, not in this little corner right. of it. Right. And then I, 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 when I left to go to Frog, you know, I knew it would be difficult to go to uh, such a consumer electronics um, focused consultancy, especially at a creative director level. But, you know, I just would do smartphone. I would do I did a bunch of concepts for smartphones and other pieces of consumer electronics. And I just send them to the editors at blogs and Gizmodo would publish it. Uh, oh. Mobile PC magazine published a bunch of my work, just conceptual consumer electronics so that when I left Nike to go to CE, it was, it was apparent that I could do that work. Sure. Um, and, and still, still in my interview, one of the other creative directors said, Oh, a shoe guy. I'm like, Nope, not a shoe guy. I am, <laughs> uh, I'm a creative director responsible for 800 products a year for one of the biggest brands in the world that's making industry leading product. I'm like, if frog Design's not interested in that, let me know. I'll pack up my stuff and this interview's right. over. And I left there. I left there with a with a with a job offer, um, and then coming out of Frog, I was chief design officer of a consumer electronics conglomerate called Sound United, 
um, that owns um, five or six different audio brands. Um, uh, at the time, they owned Polk, Definitive, and Boom. And then before I left, they bought Denon and Marantz. Huh. And in that role, I was in charge of um, product line management, industrial design, packaging, um, as well as uh, overseeing all the marketing creative. So by that point, I think I had just kind of figured out that the um, the pigeonhole terms are, you know, excuse the, excuse the language, but it was bullshit. You know, like you can do whatever you want. The limits are what other people put on you. And if you refuse the limits, you can apply your creativity and do anything. Uh, and then in, in the last four years, of running my own firm. We've done a bunch of different wearable tech projects. Um, Hasbro's come on as a client. So a bunch of toys, a bunch of footwear work, um, a lot of design strategy work. We do a lot, at least one or two big design strategy programs, like for CCM hockey and pampered chef, like design languages to go across their, their whole portfolio. Um, and so, you know, for me, I think running a firm, sorry to ramble a little bit here, but I kind of just take the position of like, I'm here as a designers, we're taught to empathize with the end user, but, um, I apply that to my clients, you know, I empathize with my clients. I I've been in their shoes. I've, I've been a, a chief design officer buying half million dollar design programs. Um, so I understand how stressful that is. And I try to make sure that we're just aligned on the goals and I'm getting them what they need to advance the program forward. You know, for a company like Hasbro that has a, a giant machine, they just need, con they need cool concepts, right? That's what they need. But for, for some of the other companies I'm working with, like, um, like Kire, which makes acoustic wall and ceiling, uh, panel and, mm -hmm. and, uh, products, um, you know, that, that program has been a, a two year relationship that's gone from you know, brand positioning, branding through to product design, packaging, helping develop product development calendars. So anyway, I try to be flexible and insert ourselves where we can best be a service. And, um, you know, my, when, when some people don't get it to your, to your point, Dan, like some people are like, but what's the one thing you do better? And I'm like, that's, you know, you know what, we're, this conversation's over. This is not going to, it's not going <laughs> to, we're already, you're asking the wrong question. So it's not going to, it's not going to go anywhere. You know, what, what I do is I help apply creativity in, you know, and it's like, so sometimes, sometimes that's developing a product creation calendar. And sometimes that's making a really cool sketch of a transformer. And, um, for me, I love doing the spectrum. Um, sometimes I wish, I wish I was somebody that could just be like, Hey, I'm just going to work in this category and be happy for the rest of my life. My life probably be a lot simpler and a lot less stressful, but, um, anyway, it is what it is. That's awesome. No, that's a great, no, I don't think it's a long answer. I think it's a right. It's, it's really, that that's really great. I've never really, um, you know, spoken to anybody with that perspective before. And I, I think it's the right perspective. And, and, I think that's a good way to introduce young designers into design. So I have a daughter that's in design school now. And so I'm trying to like provide design. Um, I'm trying to covertly give her some design advice without telling her how to do or be a designer. Um, because, you know, she doesn't want to listen to me because I'm her dad. And, yeah. you, you know, even though <laughs> I work in design, sometimes, you know, sometimes she wants to listen. But um I, I think it's really cool. You're not pigeonholing yourself. I, I think that's, 
you know, going in with that kind of attitude, it's like, it's probably one piece of advice you could probably give to just about every designer is to not pigeonhole yourself and, and, and take that Massimo Vignelli's uh, uh, quote of, you know, if you can design one thing, you can design anything. And um, that's how I found industrial design was, was, you know, I studied architecture and have a degree in architecture and, and I was reading about um, Dieter Rams and, and he had a degree in architecture. I'm like, well, shit, if he can do products and with a degree in architecture, then I, I suppose I can too. So that was, that was one of the ways I was able to kind of find my way in, into this profession. Yeah. I think that, you know, you, you, I don't know if this video will be shared to this, but you could see the wall behind me and a lot of old concept sketches, but like this was for a program for Motorola years ago. This was for another smartphone company a long time ago. This was the interior for a ramen shop down in Southern California. Um, you know, this is a, a platform uh, home theater, single unit uh, product uh, for Polk. So, you know, it's just, I just think it's, to me, it's just taking the time to be curious. And I think also clients that get it, understand that that cross pollination can be really powerful. So yeah. one, one, uh, like probably the best story I have to that, the most direct story was, uh, when, when I was in the beginning of my career at Evo, um, we did a lot of work for Timex and I remember I was, simultaneously working on a Timex project and a project for Nike. So in the morning I was working out how these kind of like metal uh, links would, would work out for a, a watch band. And in the afternoon I was working on this advanced design project for, for Nike on um, that was all based around kind of natural motion, the way the foot, the foot moved. And I thought like, wow, I just had been working on the super flexible metal band for a watch. Like, wouldn't it be cool if the shoe could work like that, instead of being this single chunk of injection molded foam or compression molded foam, could we have these individual chunks of foams that could be pinned together? And so did a bunch of work on that, pitched it to Nike. They're like, well, we couldn't do that because it would literally like explode into a million pieces the second you ran on it. But they're like, well, there's something there. And they're like, let's, we're going to take it in-house and, and work on that. And that's what, what, you know, evolved into Nike free, this idea of these kind of individual blocks, but basically what they developed was in the injection tool. Um, they basically put in these replaceable kind of knife blades because those, you know, in an injection, uh, uh, EVA kind of application, everything is about two thirds scale. Cause when it comes out of the mold, it expands. Um, so, and those, those thin edges have to be, you know, one third thinner in, in the mold. And so they wear down. So they put in these replaceable blades so that you'd get these almost independent blocks of foam that are just attached by a, a few millimeters of foam at the top. Um, but anyway, if I hadn't been working on a watch band in the morning, would I have ever come up with that idea? Pro probably not. Wow. No, that's really, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so when, when did you go out on your own and start your own studio? How long have you been yeah, it'll be four years ago next week. Um, wow. And and so for, for me, you know, it's like I had been, I'd always wanted to do my own thing. It was kind of my, my vision to do so. Um, but I didn't have the, the courage of, let's say, like a, a Hartmut Esslinger that started Frog like right out of school. Never, he had, Hartmut went on one interview. With, it was with Dieter Rams 
Buram said, you're unemployable. So he's like, fine, I'll start my own firm. And it's frog. <laughs> um, I, di I didn't have that courage. I, I wanted to, I knew I didn't, I, I knew enough to know that I, I needed to learn a lot more. Um, and so I was so lucky to get my first job at a design firm where the junior partner really took me under his wing and um, you know, mentored me. And then, you know, I, I had this sense of like, we're doing great work. People, clients love us, but the work that's coming out the other side is, you know, so it's, it's sometimes greatly altered if it makes it at all. And so I was like, what am I missing as a young designer that I'm not, I don't understand. Like I'm obviously missing control of something. Um, and so I wanted to go corporate and I really loved working with Nike. And so I went in-house at Nike. I thought I would do that for about two years um, and ended up being eight years just because I loved the company so much. I worked for the Nike brand and then the 13th designer ever to work in the Jordan brand. And then when they purchased Converse, they asked me to be design director for Converse. Um, but after eight years, I was like, you know, I, I think I, I've learned what I'm going to learn. I, I, I understood like, okay, I've been to China like a million times. I've, I've signed off on tooling. I've been, I've presented to the board of directors at Nike. You know, I, I've learned everything I can learn here and time to take that back to the consulting side, um, which was really interesting going to Frog because mo mostly a lot of folks there were career consultants. And so there was this lack of, um, it just wasn't like, you know, like we would do like, oh, there's a mandatory 48 hour decision process. It's like, yeah, it's not, this is a $4 million project. Like there's not going to be a decision in 48 hours. Like this person's going to have to show their boss. They're going to have to have a meeting about it. Like, we, again, we need to empathize with the client a little more, understand what they're going through. Um, I did that for a few years. And then one of, one of my bigger clients, um, which was, which was a holding company called DEI Holdings, uh, asked me to come in-house to basically build an internal frog. And I had been thinking about starting my own studio at that time. And I was like, oh, great. This would be a, you know, a client basically is asking me to start a design studio. They have three or four brands already. So it's basically like a design studio with three or four clients. Um, built up that practice. They had no internal design. So from zero to about a team of 25, 30. Um, and again, I thought I would do that for a couple of years and then get back on track opening my own studio. But I became so personally invested. I, I helped rename the company to Sound United, um, just built this, this great team. And it was hard to leave, but my, my wife, who's also my business partner, just was, was poking me. She's like, remember you said, you wanted to start, you did this. So you'd have to like check the last box before you started your own thing. And it's coming up on five years. And, um, so thankfully <laughs> she got me back on track. Uh, and I was, you know, I think I was, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I was rightfully terrified, you know, like, am I going to have, am I going to have work? Um, it's a being working at frog. I understand how competitive things were and, like anything, I think, yeah, I didn't, I took it as a design project. So, you know, I started to get my ducks in a row before I left Sound United to just, you know, file my paperwork as an LLC and establish myself. And, um, but I also started doing some research. So 
I interviewed about 10 or 12 people um, who I trusted and had worked with in the past who were, you know, VPs or C-levels at companies or maybe, you know, business owners of, of brands that, you know, were, that they had grown to reasonable size. And I just wanted to ask them for their advice, like what would they tell themselves when they were starting out? And most importantly, you know, was I crazy? Could I do this? And one, all, all 12 of them said, yeah, you can do this. I have hundred percent confidence in you. And six of them, so 50% of them asked me to write proposals for projects. Wow, and I hadn't even, I'm like, I don't even have any, I don't have anything yet. Like I'm not a company They're like that's, a, you know, that's fine. And so the first day of the studio, we signed our first contract. And then the third day, it was a month, the Monday was the first day. And then that third day, which was a Wednesday, I remember going to Orange County uh, to sign a contract in person for the second project. And that client was like, you know, Michael, we're, we're so proud to be your first client. And I was like, guys, it's so cute, but you're number two. <laughs> like, is this your first week? I'm like, yeah, but it's my third day. You know? so, um, so anyway, we've just been pretty solidly busy ever since. And um, I keep it small because I, you know, I started this to do, to do the work. So I only take three projects at a time. We only have three clients at a time. So every client knows they're going to get you know, a third of my time. They're not just going to get a bunch of interns on the project. <laughs> sure. Right. How many, how many uh, employees do you have? The firm itself is just my wife and I, and then we bring on contractors as needed. And right okay. now we have two running. Uh, we've been as many as seven and we've been as small as just the two of us. So, and I, I like, love that. I love the flexibility. And um, when you have, let's say, uh, reviews with your employee, is it your wife reviewing you then? Or are you reviewing your wife? <laughs> How does the feedback loop work on that? Yeah, she's, uh, I mean, we've been together since I was 19. So oh, we've known wow. each other a really long time. Wow, that's and awesome. she has a very different, uh, she also went to art school, but then went back to school uh, to become a psychotherapist. So oh, she's, wow really great when it comes to like research planning and um, getting ethnography underway. Um, And then she's also just kind of a great business mind. So she, she runs kind of the numbers side of side of things. Um, And yeah, we, 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 you know, we'll work really collaboratively. Like we did a bunch of work for a a company that does uh, that makes, um, like house as housewares and it was all around like the future of food and you know so we'll work really collaboratively collaboratively at the early stage in terms of like what is that what is the future of food prep and like what will people need um and then i'll work on concepts or sometimes i'll bring in a contractor to help with that and then we'll review it together and um yeah it's kind of a you know i joke around that we're it started as a joke, but I was like, yeah, we're like Charles and Ray Eames, That's but it becomes say. more yeah, and more. Like the Eames 2.0. <laughs> it becomes more and more true each year. So, <laughs> really so Michael, um, you've seen a lot of, of uh, design and different uh, skills over, over the years. Now, what do you think is the, uh, some of the most important skills for students right now or people graduating or you know, people that are kind of new to design looking for a job, like what are, what do you think are those most most important skills? It's a, it's a great question and a really difficult question because design is really big. You know, there's, there's room 
for so many different kinds of designers in the world. There's different, um, you know, to me, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a dogmatic person and I'm not a process person. I, I think process is important so that can get you to an end result. But if you're not getting to the correct result, you're not using the right process. So, you know, for me, tools, skills, processes are all interchangeable uh, based on the project and the client, based on what you need to get there. Um, so, you know, I think the only thing that doesn't go away is, uh, are, are the softer skills. You know, you, you have to be a curious person, right? You have to always be, have a, a, a student's mindset. You always have to be willing to learn because you know, I've been doing this since 1998 and the way we do things is completely different 23 years later. And I'm sure it'll be completely different 23 years from now. So if you're like, I'm all about SolidWorks, well, guess what? That didn't exist when I started doing this and it probably won't exist. You know, there'll be something totally different 20 years from now. So I'm not a big, like, you know, for me, it's, it's about that kind of being a curate, being curious, being a learner, being empathetic, being willing to roll up your, your sleeves and, and get to work, whether that's just like heading out into the shop and making a dirty prototype or doing a sketch or figuring out how to build a CAD model. Um, you know, I think those are, those are the skills that are going to always be a part of, of a designer. And I think you have to remember that what we do is a, is a marathon, you know, not a sprint. So I've been doing this for 23 years. You, Aaron, you've been doing this for two. In 23 years from now, hopefully you'll still be doing this, but hopefully I'll still be doing this too. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I, I was <clears throat> talking to, to Hartmut the other day and he's like, yeah, I think I got a, a couple more decades of design in me. And I'm like, guys, he's like in the seventies. <laughs> you know, he's still, he's still working. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, I, I think you have to, I think don't get locked into a skill, you know, like, like people ask me, like, what's your, your favorite pen to sketch with? And it's like, whatever pen is closest, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, like what kind of hammer you use doesn't matter. What matters is that you built a house. Yeah, that's really good. I, I, I also, you know, there's some things I agree with and I've, I've tried to instill that, you know, one designer can't be made up of all of these different types of skills, you know, and be a hundred percent effective in every single one. Um, I think you're, you're right. The generic ones are like, you know, the empathy, soft skills in terms of how to talk and deal with people, uh, being curious is like the, probably the most important one as a designer. Um, but like, I mean, I look at like creating a design team is a lot like making a band, right? Like, you know, U2 isn't made up of a bunch of Bonos. You can't have five front men. You need, you got to have a drummer, right? You, you got to have a guy that, that plays the bass and a guy that can play the guitar really good and a dude that knows how to get really flashy and get in front of people and get everybody to fall in love with whatever it is that you're trying to present and show, show to these people, right? And, you know, I've got staff members that are like, uber technical excellent like you give them a notebook and you know 12 months later it's like perfect uh, object right and um you know sometimes people are really good in that area but they're not as good as sort of some of the front end like um you know thousand foot level uh, conceptual work right of like really going outside of the boundaries of what can be made uh and so 
you know, I find it great to have all of these types of people on your team because then you kind of figure out how do you apply all of their different skills so that would, at the end you have like this nice, you know, chorus of, 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 of music that's happening, you know, um, and, and uh, it, it's really hard for one, if you get every, if everyone's a front man, um, sometimes the egos get in the way. So it's really hard to get, you know, work done. But, um, you know, I try not to be the, I don't want, I don't like to be in the front man. Uh, I like having other, I like getting my, my staff to, to get out there and, and, you know, deliver all the excellent design. So Michael, maybe tell us, I, people are always curious to know, uh, how did you come across when, when and how did you come across industrial design of, hey, this is something that I can actually do for a, a career? It's a good question. I, I, I love collecting those stories because each one is, is so unique. It's like a superhero origin story. Right. Um, and, and, you know, some of us find it, you know, very much later in life or, or you know, I have plenty of friends in design who have a first degree or a first few years as a mechanical engineer. Right or architecture like Tony or, you know, all kinds of different things. I, I was one of the, the lucky ones. I was, uh, um, you know, I, I considered it this moment of optimistic uh, rebellion for, for me as a kid. Like, I mean, a little kid, like I just always loved imagining the future of things. Like I, I would come home, I'm a Gen Xer, so latchkey kid, come home from school, uh, let myself in, put on cartoons, and um, I'd set up like a TV tray in front of the TV and I'd get the Sears catalog and I'd open this for, for those of you that are too young, yeah. the Sears catalog was like a printed Amazon. Uh, and I would open the Sears catalog up to a random page and, you know, open up like uh, power drills or stereo systems and be like, oh, I wonder what the future of a power drill would be like. And oh. I would try to imagine that and draw it. Um, and I mean, this is like, I'm like, 10 years old. Um, and so, you know, that's not what my, (laughs) I didn't know my, I came from a pretty, you know, middle-class, um, family and, and, uh, there were some, a lot of musicians in my family and, and a few artists, but none that were doing that professionally. So that was kind of like, you know, oh, that's, you, you could be creative, but that's your hobby, right? You have to get a real job. And, for some reason, the the real job that my father envisioned for me was a shortstop for the New York Yankees, which is <laughs> also didn't seem like very pragmatic. But you know, so we would we would uh, train every day for you know oh, wow. I would, you know I come home, I would do my drawing, and then you know I do my homework, and my dad would come home, and we would train for an hour or two every day. And I I like most kids who are forced to do something, I hated it. Um, I mean, I just like hated it. And so I remember one day I was 12 or 13 years old. Um, you know, my dad came home and it was like, Michael, go get your your glove. It's time to train. And I remember just being like, I don't want to play baseball. And he's like, you don't want to play baseball, like not today or not ever. And I was like, I don't want to play baseball ever. And, um, and he was like, well, what do you want to, what do you want to do? Like as if like there was no other option right, other right. than being shortstop for the Yankees. And I said, I want to draw stuff from the future. <laughs> he was like, what? And, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty damn good description for yeah, yeah. what it is I do. Uh, but a few weeks later, I remember, um, you know, my, my dad also read the wall street journal every day. And a few weeks later on the cover of the wall street journal, there was an article uh, about, uh, Giorgetto Giugiaro, you know, 
famous Italian designer who did the DeLorean and many other cars. And he's like, is, is this what you want to do? And it's, you know, it's said he was an industrial designer. And I remember ripping out that article and um, pinning it up next to my bed. And I was there till I went to college, probably. I wish I still had it. Um, and I, I, I could so remember in that kind of Wall Street Journal, like, you know, uh, woodcut style with a little illustration of Giugiaro and then a drawing of a concept car he did for BMW, a tennis racket he did, and a, a pasta shape that he did that was designed to hold sauce better. And I was like, that's that's freaking it. I want to do all this stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I was very fortunate that I found it so, so young. Um, but I know it's not usually the case. No, that's a great story. Where did you go to school? I, I went to the Rhode Island Rhode Island School of Design uh, due to another story. You know, I was I remember I was in ninth grade um, geometry class. Mrs. Jacobitz was the the teacher, and I was in the back just drawing away curiously because that's what I was usually doing in the back of any class. And I remember she came up behind me and you know, ripped the paper off of my notebook and was like, don't draw in class and see me after class. And after class, I, uh, um, you know, I came up to see her and she smoothed out the drawing and handed it back. She's like, I'm sorry I did that. I, just, I got angry, but she's like trying not to draw in class. And she wrote on the top Rhode Island School of Design. And she's like, you know, my, my brother went here to become an architect. And because, you know, this is pre this is the 90s, way pre Google. And she's like, write write to them to get their catalog. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I did. I went there. So that's awesome. <laughs> I also went to uh, I did an uh, you know, again, pre Internet times, really. Um, there was no way to see what's going on at another school. Right. You just know, can hop on Instagram or yeah. Behance or Coraflop. And so I had this sense that other schools were, were learning things very differently, being taught things very differently. So I did an exchange semester at the Cleveland Institute of Art, um, specifically because um, they had classes on Saturdays so that professionals could teach, which was a great, I thought a really cool idea. Um, and then I did a summer program that was taught in conjunction between RISD and Domus in, uh, in Milan, which was also, you know, as a 19 year old, very yeah, eye opening. Great. Wow, that's really cool. So let, let me ask you this. So you're, you were told early on, you know, art is kind of a hobby, but you're obviously doing it full time, you know, as an industrial designer. Well, what do you do? What, what is your hobby? What, what kind of things do you do outside of work? I'm, a, to I'm kind of a, it's pretty off? boring. You know, I, I love, I love what we do. I, I do a lot of design concepts. And then, you know, for me, it's just about, I don't, I don't have a lot of, hobbies that take up a lot of my mind space uh, to be honest I, I love just kind of living life you know eating great food getting some good coffee you know being with friends and family um, I love cars so I love going for long drives um, and uh, I feel like I'm doing like a uh, video dating uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I love I'm, I love science fiction. So I'm, I'm like, I guess if I had a hobby, it would be reading science fiction. I, I can't not be reading a novel. Um, yeah. Right now I'm reading this 
a huge one. It's like a 950 page novel by, I think his name is Ryan Hughes. It's called XX and it's on, it's kind of on the future of kind of digital, um, digital personalities and AI. Uh, so yeah, I just, I have to read, um, like I don't, which I find very, I almost don't consider it a hobby because I find it so related to what I do as an industrial designer. So it's, it kind of, I forget about it, but I, I read okay. at least an hour a night, maybe two. That's great. Yeah. Well, Michael, we're up on 36 minutes. I don't want to take a lot of your time. I know you're super busy. Uh, I really appreciate you talk, telling us your story. It, it's really fascinating. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really inspired by your work and your attitude and, and just how, um, uh, you know, enthusiastic you are about what it is that you do. And, and I, I think that's always a breath of fresh air to be around people that are excited about what it is that they do. And, and it makes you want to go back and try harder. Uh, certainly makes me want to go back and try harder and, and, and get better at, at what it is that, that we do for a living. Do you have any like parting words or anything you want to ask us or, or uh, anything you want to say before we leave? Um, that's a good question. I mean, one, just thanks for having me on. It's, it's, uh, it's great to be here. It's always a pleasure to speak with other designers and thank you for, for kind of getting these stories out there. Um, obviously if, if people are more interested in, in, uh, my work, you can follow me on Instagram at Ditulo or on YouTube at Michael Ditulo. And one last thing I just keep thinking about Aaron's question about about skills. And I think, I don't know if this is a skill, I guess it's more of a mindset, but I think the most important thing to me, as served me as an industrial designer, is to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And for, for me, I, I, whenever I feel comfortable, like when I was at Nike for a long time or at Frog, uh, I was just like, I, when you, as soon as I start to feel like I know what I'm doing too much, I can tell my ideas aren't as innovative because you, you automatically start self-selecting. You're like, Oh, this is what's expected of me. And I find that when I'm uncomfortable, it keeps me up at night, but also like I'm doing my best work. It's my most exciting work, the work I'm the most proud of. So I guess if I could say one piece of advice to designers, it's just to seek that, you know, to, to know that that feeling of uncomfortableness is might mean that you're on the, the edge of doing something really good. So, so don't run away from it, run towards it. I, I, I say that all the time. I, I don't know if you guys have heard yeah, me say that. I say that all the time, Be, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and I remember yeah. having a young designer was like questioning me one time about something. He's like, Oh, you know, he wasn't a hundred percent done with what he was doing. And it's like, I'm not really comfortable with giving that to them. I'm like, Hey, just be comfortable with being uncomfortable because no matter what you do, they're going to have comments and they're going to give right. you feedback and, and we can't wait a week. You, you, we got to go now. Right. And, and, uh, that's a, that's like such a great yeah. and I, way to live. And I think the thing I, I would do is pair that with just be honest about it. Right. To, right. And be honest with yourself and who you are. And, and I think pairing that with, you know, just don't be afraid and you'll do great. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think Tony, what you're saying is like, too, it's like, this is a team sport. 
you know, like you're, you're not like, you don't get you. I've seen young designers just like perfecting a CAD file into infinity. And I'm like, what do you think is going to happen to that? That's going to go to the manufacturing vendor and they're going to remake that CAD file. anyway. They'll put big fat radiuses on everything. I know. know. Yeah. And what you have to have skill at the, the skill with the CAD is not only do you have to have skill to build what you're doing now, but you have to have skill to like translate because that person typically doesn't have English as a first language translate what you want to do with the surfaces into something that they can understand and give back to you what you want. Right. That, that's like, that's the hard part. That's, that's really hard. And, and doing it over the phone and over zoom and, and cause we can't travel now and it's like, it's even harder. So, um, yeah, that's, that's great. That's awesome. It, it's, it, uh, you, you've, you've repeated a lot of things that I've, I've mentioned to some of my younger staff and, and it's, uh, it's really good. It's good stuff. I'm not the only one. Thank goodness. <laughs> Definitely not. Thanks. Well, it's good to know. It's good to have that validation. And that's, uh, that's what happens when you're, you're a veteran of design, right? It's like you, you see it and it's like, it's the same in every industry I've worked in too. It's like, it's like, Hey, I'd rather get something rough to somebody so we can have a conversation about it versus perfecting it. And then they're like, Oh, that's not even plausible anyway. No, right. Well, thanks. We just wasted so much time. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, thank, thank you. I'll let you know when it's getting on, probably in the next week.